Hey, church family. Hope you're all doing well and, and staying safe and healthy. Certainly good to be with you on this Sunday or whenever it is that you're watching this. Hopefully it's Sunday, but uh, gather to, to worship God together, even if it's online. We're just so glad that you've chosen to join us and uh, worship with us today and want you to know how much we love and, and care about each and every one of you. And uh, just so glad to, to, to know that you're a part, even if it's online, of worshiping God with us and and growing together as the body of Christ and, and hopefully individuals growing closer uh, to Jesus Christ. And so we're glad that you've chosen, <clears throat> excuse me, to join with us and worship with us uh, today or this morning or like I said, whenever it is that you're watching. We're just glad uh, that you're with us. I, I don't know how many of you remember the show or watched the show when you were younger uh, called Rescue 911. I remember watching that show when I was younger, probably dating myself a little bit, but it was on in the early to mid 90s and I didn't watch it all the time, but I remember watching it quite a few times. I even have the jingle still in my mind. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing it to you this morning, but I, I just remember watching the show and a lot of the the, the stories that they tell, they still tell different stories every week or every time the show was on. And a lot of the stories were a little more serious in nature. Obviously, it's a rescue and um, you know, there's life or death situations in a lot of them. But, but there were some humorous times and humorous stories. And there's one that, that stands out in particular to me. Uh, it was from January 4th, 1993. And don't worry, I don't recall all of the details. So I'm, I'm sharing this with you because I had to look it up. But uh, January 4th, 1993. Margie and Larry Beavers were sound asleep in their home in Oceanside, California, when suddenly, at about 2 a.m., uh, 2 in the morning, they heard a noise, a loud noise uh, in their house. house. And they were still kind of half asleep at this point, uh, so they kind of made their way downstairs, and they thought it was a knock. They thought it was maybe outside or a knock at the door, and so they walked downstairs to, to see if somebody was at the door. But when they did, they still heard the noise, and they investigated a little bit closer and found that it was coming from their own fireplace. And so as they approached a little bit closer, they were not exactly prepared for what they were about to see because what they saw was actually a man's soot-covered head and shoulders hanging upside down from inside their chimney. When they asked the man who he was, I, I love this part, and it's close to Christmas time, so it fits, when they asked the man who he was and what he was doing there, he replied angrily, I'm Santa Claus. <laughs> Margie, the wife, then asked him, well, if you're Santa Claus, then where are our presents? Because I know we've been good this year. At any rate, uh, the man was okay physically, but he was definitely stuck and they, they could not get him out. He could not get out himself. And so still wearing their pajamas and with their Christmas lights on their tree blinking behind them in the background, Margie called 911 and explained their rather odd situation to the 911 dispatcher who was very confused at the situation that was at hand. But anyway, she dispatched police officers and emergency personnel uh, to their house. And when they got there, they were no less confused at what they saw and what had been explained to them. And so they came in and kind of chuckled at the whole thing as they're retelling the story. And uh, after attempting to pull the man out, they figured out pretty quickly that they were not pulling, them out, pulling him out on their own. So they ended up having to, brick by brick, take apart the fireplace hearth uh, where in, their, in that family's home. Apparently the, the suspect had, uh, this is what he claimed, that he had jumped into the couple's chimney from above 
in an effort to, somehow he was on the roof, but in an effort to get away from some people who were chasing him, he climbed down or jumped down or whatever into their chimney and eventually uh, got stuck. Uh, they eventually found him guilty of burglary. He was charged with burglary and was sentenced to 330 days in prison once they got him out, that is. And everybody except for, obviously, the man who was stuck had a pretty good laugh about the whole situation. As for Margie and Larry, they'll probably never think again in the same way about Christmas or about Santa Claus delivering presents. Probably never think about Santa Claus in the same way again. But they did have a pretty good sense of humor about the whole thing because perhaps the funniest part of the story is that they made up, they actually did this, made up Christmas cards with a picture of the would-be thief hanging upside down inside their chimney with the words, and I love this part, just drop in any time. Well, we all love a good rescue story, don't we? I don't know if that would actually classify as a good rescue story, but we all love a good heartfelt rescue story, although I'm not sure that's what James had in mind in the passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at in the book of James uh, today. You know, we've been journeying through the book of James and, and examining what it looks like to have a faith that works. And today our journey brings us to the end of the book of James as we're going to look at his last exhortation and uh, admonition to us as believers and to those believers back then. And uh, in many ways, it has a lot to do with search and rescue. Again, maybe not exactly the rescue that I talked about in the story but a search and rescue nonetheless. And so let's listen to what James has to say. Very last words, last two verses in James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Here's what James writes. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. In some ways, it's kind of an odd way to end a letter, isn't it? I mean, that's probably not the way that you would end a letter or email that you sent to someone. It's certainly not the way that we see other letters like from the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, uh, the way he ends his letters, either to the churches or to individuals like Philemon. So why does James end his letter the way that he does? Well, let me give you something to think about. Hopefully, it can kind of explain this. Remember that James is writing this to to believers, to, to, to Christians. And throughout the letter, he's been talking to them, as we've been talking about, and to us as well, about a faith that works. What, is, what does it look like for a faith that works? And as we've also talked about, James doesn't pull any punches. He, he, he's right to the point, he's blunt, and, and he, he is in your face in a lot of things that he says. But his purpose in, in being that way and saying the things that he does is not to bash them or, or to, to condemn them or to, to push them down and belittle them, but rather he's looking out for them. He wants them to grow from the very beginning. Chapter one, he talks about how he wants them to grow and mature in their walk with Christ. And his way of looking out for them and, and for us is to teach them and, and to correct where, where he'd learned that they'd kind of gotten off track and to warn them of the pitfalls that lie ahead if they departed from the truth. And so throughout this letter, James has been pinpointing specific areas in which they've, they've begun to slip or, or, or potential pitfall areas. 
And so he talks about things like doubting through trials and and, and blaming when tempted and anger and prejudice and sterile intellectualism and and a loose tongue and jealousy and arrogance and being judgmental and showing favoritism and uh, planning without God and taking advantage of others because of uh, of wealth and, and a lack of prayer, just to name a few. In essence, for these five chapters, James has been coming to their rescue and our rescue. He's been watching out for his brothers and sisters in Christ, and now he ends his letter by urging them and us to look out for one another. And yet, truth be told, you and I live in a day and age where the growing response to people in trouble is, it's really none of my business. I don't want to really get involved, either because we don't want to spend the time and energy and effort, or maybe we don't want to be, you know, don't want to come off as judgmental. There's several different reasons. I can't help but think, though, of the story of Cain and Abel, when God asked Cain, who had just killed his brother, mind you, God asked him, Cain, where's your brother Abel? And Cain shot back, am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? And that mindset really does sort of permeate our culture today. It's every man and woman for themselves. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not my brother or sister's keeper, am I? Or am I? Do, are we our brother or sister's keeper? Do we have any obligation, any responsibility to our brothers and sisters in Christ? James and really all of scripture would say, yeah, you do have a responsibility. And and yes, in many ways you are your brother or sister's keeper. And James makes that clear if by nothing else, but by wrapping up his letter, by ending his letter, by calling us to look out for each other. Now, just to be clear, James does not say that we are to be our brother or sister's critic or that we are to be holy meddlers, or spiritual policemen issuing spiritual tickets. But any faith that truly works in the real world not only guards our own lives, but it also helps guard our brothers' and sisters' lives as well. And so James says, and here's the first thing that I would would just, I think that he tells us, and it's this, that God uses all of us to keep all of us spiritually safe. God uses all of us to keep all of us spiritually safe. Why? Because we all face an enemy. And that enemy is very real. The Bible says that the devil is like a roaring lion and he is roaming around seeking whom he may devour. Satan wants to devour you. And I'm guessing that right now you can think of somebody in your life, a Christian brother or sister, who Satan has his claws in them. I'm also guessing, although I'm not really guessing on this part, I know that each of us, myself included, can think back to times in our own lives where we've been that brother or sister in Christ who Satan had his claws in. And listen, I mean, let's just be real. The the flow of the current is away from God. The flow of the current is toward 
at the very least, nominal discipleship. The, the flow is toward giving up on Jesus or at the very least, having him down the list of priorities in our lives. And if you're not intentional about going upstream, if you're not intentional in your pursuit of Jesus and your pursuit of God, there's a good chance you're gonna get picked off. And so we need each other's help in this. It's not, a, it's not a good thing. It is a necessity. We need each other's help in this. We need encouragement. We need accountability. And one mark, at least one mark of a faith that works is I'm not just looking out for me, but I have a responsibility to others in the body of Christ. We really are our brother's keeper, our sister's keeper. That's why the Lord uses all of us, all of us, to keep all of us spiritually safe. Notice that James says, my brothers and sisters, if one of you, again, he's talking to the Christian community. He's not talking about outsiders. He's talking about the Christian community. If one of you should wander away, and notice someone, someone should bring him back. Again, this is a ministry for all of us, and it is a wonderful ministry. It is a rewarding ministry. It's not always a fun or pleasant ministry, but it is a needed ministry, and it is a wonderful and rewarding ministry. It's wonderful to lead somebody to Jesus, and it is wonderful to lead somebody back to Jesus. And whenever you know someone who's in your sphere of influence, your arena of influence, who has wandered from God, that is in essence God's assignment to you. God has put that person in your path to reach out to. Now, we have two elders in our congregation, Dan and Lauren, and they're both great men. And elders do have a responsibility. Other passages in scripture and even in James here, there's certain responsibilities that elders have and they have a, a spiritual responsibility to look out for the spiritual well-being for the members of, of the church and specifically Dan and Lauren, the elders in this church, to look out for the, the spiritual well-being of the members in this church. But listen carefully. Although James in his letter will say that elders have specific responsibilities, here in this section we're looking at, when he's talking about restoring the wanderer, he does not say this is an elder-only assignment. James does not say, hey, this is for elders only or pastors only, ministers only. In certain situations, elders are often the last resort, shouldn't, shouldn't necessarily be the first resort, and sometimes are not the best resort. Oftentimes, the best person, the best resort is someone who has a regular relationship with that person. And a word of encouragement is not coming from, you know, somebody quote unquote official, but it starts with somebody, anybody who just reaches out and says, listen, I just want you to know I love and care about you. And I'm here for you. How can I help you? How can I encourage you? How can I strengthen you? Or however you might go about saying it. And again, our, our elders are are always willing to help. And, and listen, I'm always willing to help. And you can reach out to us at, at any time. But James doesn't say, you know, here's the first thing you do. The first thing you do is, is call the elders or call Josh or, or, or send them an email. That, that, that's not the first thing you do. You are the first response. You are the first responder. You be that somebody. Certainly when I think about James's words here at the end of James chapter five, 
One of the first stories that comes to mind is the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. But there's another story that I think about when it comes to this idea of being the one, being that somebody to reach out. We know it as the story of the Good Samaritan, but it really could be subtitled, Somebody Ought to Do Something. Somebody Ought to Do Something. Of course, many of you know the story. Man gets beaten and robbed and left for dead, and all sorts of people walk by, including a a priest and a Levite, to what should be religious men. They just walk on by, and they basically say, you know, somebody ought to do something. Somebody ought to do something. Finally, the somebody who does something is a Samaritan man who was the last person that those listening to Jesus tell this story would have expected. He helps the beaten man, binds up his wounds, takes him to an inn to recover, pays for his lodging there. And and I, I say that to say that James is, basically his admonition to us is you be that somebody. That's what Jesus is saying. You be that somebody. And James is saying the same thing. You be that somebody. And when you know somebody in, in, in your circle of influence and, and you, you, you see that there's something that's not right, there's something out of place, you be that person who reaches out and helps them and encourages them. So how do we go about doing that? How, how do we go about reaching out? Well, I'm going to give you a few approaches in just a moment. But before we get to the approaches and kind of the practical nature... I guess this is also very practical too. Uh, Here's the most important factor. Here is the key. Looking out for each other starts with prayer. Looking out for each other starts with prayer. The starting point is talking to God first about it. And this is true in every area of our lives, but it's especially true when it comes to what James is talking about here. You know, last week we talked about the power of prayer. And, and we talked about some things that prayer communicates. And one of the things that we talked about that prayer communicates is it communicates the value of community. And if we truly believe that, that prayer communicates the value of community, and we truly value community in, that, in and of itself, then what better place to start than prayer and talking to God about that person that we want to bring back into the community of believers and back into community with God Himself, And so that's, that's where we start. We start with prayer just by saying, Lord, I, I want to be your instrument. I, I, there's this person that, that I see has walked away from you or, or is struggling in this area, struggling with some sin. And, and I, I want to be your instrument to help bring this person back and restore them into a relationship with you. Lead me in this. What, what are the steps that I need to take? What, what, what approach should I have in this? What, 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 what words should I say? How should I go about doing this? Lord, I need your help in this and reaching out to this person. And so that's the key. That's the first step. As I said last week, there is much to do after we pray. There's much to do after we pray. But we really shouldn't do anything before we pray. And that's true in every area of our lives, but it's especially true in this area. We, you've heard me say before, we, you know, before we talk to, to, to people about God, we should talk to God about people. And that's true in this area as well. Whether we're reaching out and telling people for the first time about Jesus to bring them into a relationship or to bring them back, <coughs> excuse me, into a relationship. But at some point, God calls us to move just beyond prayer. Prayer is the starting point and we should be praying throughout it. But, but God also calls us at some point to action. 
and to reach out. And so I just want to get real practical here. And so what are some various approaches that, that, we, that we can take as we try to reach out and, and to restore someone who's wandered away? And let me remind you that, that not everybody responds to the same approach. And so the approach you take, maybe it's not even an approach I give. I'm not going to give you every single approach, but the approach you take is going to vary depending on that person's personality or the length of time the <clears throat> excuse me, the wandering has been going on or the, the, the depth of the situation that they're in, how deep they're in that sin or whatever situation they're in uh, depends on, on your relationship with that person. There's a lot of factors that go in. But that being said, let me just give you really quickly, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on these, but just three uh, quick, three approaches really quickly uh, that I think there are. There's certainly more than this. There's probably way more than this, but I'm just trying to simplify it and uh, get practical here. But even within these three, there are nuances and uh, different aspects. And so I'm just going to give you three approaches. And this is not just my opinion on things. It's really rooted in Scripture, and it comes from other uh, thoughtful Christians, Christian authors, Christian uh, counselors, and other experts in the field. Not that I'm an expert, but other experts in the field. And so not just my thoughts on this, but just three really simple, I, I think, uh, approaches. And they all start with C, so I'm trying to make it as simple as possible. And the first is this. Uh, we start with confirming. To, to, to confirm. And when I say confirm, I don't mean in, in a sense of validation, but rather to confirm as in to, to reinforce to that person or to affirm that person as someone that you love and care about. You, you want to you go to that person, confirm to them, hey, I, I love and care about you. I, I just want you to know I, I love and care about you as a person. And just to be clear, no matter what approach you take, this should be part of it. You know, but before we say or do anything, we, people need to know that we love and care about them. That, that we're reaching out because we love and care about them. And so this, this ought to be a part of, of whatever approach you would take. Just to let that person know, hey, you, you're loved. You're valued. You're cared about. And so it's just really this, this aspect, this approach is just taking the time and the effort to, to maybe grab a cup of coffee or, or go hit some golf balls or go grab a bite to eat or, or whatever it is that they may enjoy doing or you may enjoy doing together. And you don't even necessarily have to bring anything up. That, that, you know, the, the point is not to, to necessarily get deep into that, just, just to take the time to fellowship and to love on them and let them know you care. And so confirm. And then here's the second approach. It has a little more edge to it. Uh, and it's to confer. This is where you, you kind of start to address some things and you go to that person and you say, okay, you know, let, let's go grab a bite to eat. Let's go grab a coffee or, or maybe we, you know, go somewhere a little bit more private and, and, and you say, hey, can we, can we talk about some things? And, and lovingly and gracefully, you have a conversation, um, you know, with them about some things that you're seeing in their life. And by the way, this, this is also, it's a conversation, right? And so, you know, it's helpful to kind of get, where are they? Where, where is that person? It's helpful for you as you're having that conversation to learn where they are spiritually and, and maybe some of their thinking and what they're dealing with. And the purpose is not to be accusatory. It's not to be judgmental, but just to say, hey, I, I care about you, but here's some things that I'm seeing that, that are not, they're not leading you down a good road. How can I help? How can I encourage you? How can I hold you accountable? And so, Con, con, confirm, then confer, and then lastly, I, I think the other approach is to confront. 
We, we confront. Now, let me be clear. I, I'm not advocating to be uh, belligerent or argumentative or hostile. That's not at all what I'm saying. That's not at all what Scripture says, nor is it specifically what James is calling us to here. But the Bible does call, and I think James is calling us here, to confront sin. As Christians, we are called to confront sin in whatever capacity that it's taking place in. To do it lovingly, to do it gracefully, no question about that. But to confront it nonetheless. That, that word confront comes from a combination of two Latin words. One is con, which means uh, with or together. The other is frons, which means forehead or front. So literally, the literal translation of the word confront is to bring face to face, like two foreheads against each one another. But I also like how one other translation put it, to stand in front of an issue with someone. To stand in front of an issue with someone. And I think that conveys a better picture in many ways because the idea, <coughs> excuse me, is that we're confronting the issue. We're confronting the sin, not the person. We're standing in front of the issue, in front of this sin, with that person, not against that person. I think that's so important of an imagery and a picture to get in our minds. We're standing, we're standing with that person in front of the sin, against the issue, against the sin, not against that person. Of course, now would also be a good time to point out that confronting sin starts with confronting sin in my own life. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, first take the plank out of your own eye. Then you will be able to, to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. There is a place, and James is pointing to that, where we need to help each other remove the speck from each other's eyes. There's a place for removing the speck from your brother's eye, but you need to first make sure that you remove the plank from your own eye. Which, by the way, is another reason why we start with prayer. Because we need to be asking God, not only how do I help reach out to this person, but God, work on my own heart. Because I got some planks in my own eye. And so, Father, I need your help in dealing with those planks first so that I can then help my brothers and sisters in Christ deal with the specks in their eyes. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to be sinless before we go and reach out to someone who's struggling or wandering in some way. You know, it doesn't mean that we, 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 we're going to be completely sinless before we reach out to our brothers and sisters. If that were the case, then we'd never be able to go because none of us are going to be sinless. But taking the plank out of our own eye, I, I think, does help do a couple of things. One, as Jesus says, it helps us to see more clearly, which that's important. But then secondly, seeing more clearly also helps us to speak more humbly and more lovingly. And those are two things we need when we're helping to reach out to those who are wandering. But sometimes sin needs to be confronted. Sometimes there needs to be some tough love. And again, this is why it's so important for us to start with prayer. I know I keep pounding that in, but it's so important. I need to pound it in my own life to start with prayer and allow the Holy Spirit to guide our steps and our words and our actions. But one of the, the best examples, I think, of, of confronting sin confronting you know, a person and confronting the sin is in the Old Testament when the prophet Nathan confronts King David. And he starts off by telling David a story about a, a man who had become so completely self-absorbed and self-centered 
that he'd become the villain. And then Nathan says to David, you are that man. You are that villain. You are so far off base. And David, you need to make some course corrections and you need to do it right now. You also see this approach when the Lord spoke to Cain, when Cain was so angry and and enraged and jealous about his brother Abel. God said these words to Cain in Genesis chapter 46, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. No beating around the bush here. Sin's crouching at your door and you need to confront it. And I wanna help you do that. I can remember a younger time in my Christian life where a Christian friend came to me and he saw some things in my life and he didn't know everything, but he knew enough to come to me and he said, you know, there's some things that are going on in your life and I don't know everything, but I know enough to know that the choices you're making are not good choices. And the road you're heading down is not a good road. And, And you need to make some changes right now. You need, to, you need to change the path that you're on right now. And I'm so glad he did. And I, listen, I didn't want to hear it. And there's times in my life still where, where I, I don't always like hearing correction. Nobody likes hearing correction, but I needed to hear it. Because I had one excuse after another. And you know, that's the reality. When we're, when we're knee deep in sin or waist deep in sin or neck deep in sin or over our head in sin, we've got one excuse after another. But I'm so thankful that that Christian friend took the time to reach out to me and to confront my sin because he loved me enough, loved me enough. he cared about me enough to reach out and do that. You know, Satan, Satan has this lie that somehow, if I care about you, then I won't say anything. When the reality is, do I care about you enough to say something? To love you enough to bring you back to a right relationship with Jesus Christ? Because we all need that. And at some point, I'm probably gonna need you to say something to me and bring me back as well. In the end, though, the point is not the approach. Listen to me. The point is not the approach. The point is that you love that person enough to take the action. Yes, we need to be careful what approach we take, but the point is do we love people enough to bring them back to Jesus Christ if they wandered away? I always think about Penn and Teller, the the comedy uh, duo, and and he tells a story about some guy coming and and sharing the gospel with him. And I won't go into all of that. I've told that before. But in the end, he he talks about, you know, proselytizing and and telling people about Jesus. And he says, at some point, you know, do, do you believe it or not? Do you believe that Jesus is important enough or not? And he's talking about telling people who don't know about Jesus. But at some point, do we love our brothers and sisters enough? Do we love people enough to either bring them to Jesus or bring them back to Jesus if they've wandered away. And again, first you you go to God and and you say, Lord, here's this brother or sister that that I care about, but I need you to guide my steps. I need you to guide my words. Give me wisdom, give me discernment, help me to know the best course of action that I need to take. But then Father, give me the strength and the grace to be able to take it and then do it. 
to have the conversation. Sometimes it's going to be tough, but to have the conversation, to love them enough to go to them and have that conversation and reach out to that person. And James gives us the motivation. Notice what he says. He says, and whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death. In other words, it's possible to so wander away from Christ that you end up back in a place of spiritual death. And he says, but even someone who's even gone that far, you can bring them back and cover over a multitude of sins. You see, even if you've got a laundry list of sins, a, a list of sins that you think no one could count, James says, our God is so gracious that there is no list of sins too long that he can't cover. And as I said, it is a wonderful ministry. It is a wonderful ministry to take someone's hand and lead them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. But it is no less wonderful of a ministry to take somebody's hand who's wandered away from Christ and to bring them back into a relationship with him. And for you to be that instrument to reconnect them to the Lord and give them hope again. So let me just give you a couple questions as we close our time today. First, who in your life right now is someone that you need to reach out to who has wandered away from Jesus Christ? Who's someone that you need to reach out to? And maybe a picture comes into your mind. My challenge to you today to quote from James himself, is to be a a doer of this word and not just a hearer. Reach out. Do it with love and do it with grace. But for the sake of one another and for the sake of Jesus Christ, take some action and reach out. And then a second question, are you that wanderer? Does that describe you? And you may be physically here, even though we're online. You may be physically listening and watching, but spiritually, you're far away from God. If you can hear my words today and your heart be touched at all, then you need to praise God that your heart still has the ability to be touched. Some people wander from Jesus and just harden their hearts and they harden themselves and harden themselves until scripture says that their hearts, their consciences are just seared. But if you can hear these words today and your heart still be touched, praise God for that. And may I just remind you that the Lord today, he's speaking to you and he's waiting with open arms, longing to touch you and bring you back into relationship with him. And if you've been that wanderer, hear his voice to you today and follow him. Throw yourself on his mercy and his grace and take steps back in his direction. He covers even a multitude of sins. As I said earlier, throughout this book, in many ways, James has been looking out for us. And so how does James close out this book, his last words to us by calling us to look out for each other. Are you your brother or sister's keeper? Yes. Yes, you are. And God can use you in powerful ways to express compassion and truth in the lives of one another. And keep in mind, 
Our model is Jesus. The same Jesus who once told the story about the shepherd who left 99 sheep safe in the shepherd's pen so he could go out and find the one lost sheep. Same Jesus who told the story about a prodigal son who willfully thumbed his nose at his father and headed off on a path of destruction. But it was that same wandering son, later broken by sin, selfishness, pride, covered in shame and filled with disgrace and embarrassment, dragging himself towards his father's house that caused his father to gather up his robes, his robe, and sprint with tears streaming down his face to embrace his son with open arms. Get my best robe and bring it, the father said. Put a ring on his finger. Get get the best pair of sandals you can find. I don't want my son walking around like this. And kill the fattened calf, the one we've been saving for a special occasion because this son of mine was lost. But now, he's been found. Jesus' mission on this earth, he said so himself in Luke chapter 19, was to seek and to save that which was lost. And he did. He came looking for you, and he came looking for me. And he calls us to that same purpose, to search and rescue, both to bring others to him and to bring others back to him. Where just as in the story of the prodigal son, the father waits with open arms.